Hello, my name is Dr. James O'Keefe and I'm a cardiologist at St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute. Greetings everyone. My name is Melissa McGuire and I'm a nurse clinician and certified diabetes educator at the Haverty Cardiometabolic Center of Excellence in the St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute. Thank you for joining us in this examination of the application of heart therapy guidelines. In this podcast, we'll examine a case study of a patient with potential heart failure and review current guidelines as they apply to this patient. I believe that our simulated patient experience can be a valuable resource to have and highlights some of the useful concepts to consider when evaluating patients. The prevalence of heart failure is increasing around the country and in the United States over 6 million adults have heart failure and this number is expected to increase to more than 8 million individuals by 2030. When we consider these patients' potential outcomes, we learn that their prognosis is really actually quite poor. Approximately half of all patients who receive a diagnosis of heart failure are expected to survive for less than five years regardless of their type of heart failure. Every year in this country, there are about a million hospitalizations for heart failure, which makes it the leading cause of hospitalization among adults over the age of 65. And within 30 days of discharge, almost one of every four patients with heart failure is hospitalized again. Those data really are quite devastating, Melissa, and they drive home the seriousness of this disease. The rates of hospitalization illuminate the burden that heart failure places on our patients, their loved ones, and even on our healthcare system. And these trips to the hospital have the potential to become recurrent events for patients that we care for. Okay, let's examine the link between heart failure and diabetes Diabetes is associated with multiple indications that can predispose patients to heart failure, such as hyperglycemia, insulin resistance, and hyperinsulinemia. These factors can lead to atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, which can then lead to ischemic cardiomyopathy. They can also lead to hypertension, which then in turn can lead to hypertensive cardiomyopathy. Even without hypertension or coronary issues, Diabetes can be associated with other types of dysfunction. This includes metabolic disturbances, structural alterations like cardiomyocyte hypertrophy and fibrosis, and excess angiotensin II and aldosterone production, all of which can lead to a diabetic cardiomyopathy or so-called diabetic heart. Each of these paths to the diabetic heart can increase a patient's risk of developing heart failure. It's important to note that when a patient has comorbid heart failure and diabetes, each condition may be contributing to the other's pathogenicity, resulting in a vicious circle. It's important to remember the three Fs that have been used to describe this relationship. Heart failure is the frequent, forgotten, and often fatal complication of diabetes. At this point, why don't we walk through a hypothetical case of a patient who we're calling Julia to illustrate some of the points about heart failure that we've been discussing. Melissa, do you want to kick this off? Sure. Julia is a 59-year-old woman coming in for a routine exam. She has a BMI of 33, so she's on the obese side. When she eats, she finds she gets full very quickly. She also hasn't had much of an appetite lately. She reports growing fatigue and having difficulty with exercise. She's also noticed some coughing and wheezing, especially when she's lying down. She does not have any shortness of breath though and really has no history of smoking. She's visited multiple providers about her symptoms and some have expressed concern that she might have asthma despite no prior history of it. Her past medical history and pre-existing conditions include arthritis, hypertension, and type 2 diabetes. 
She's currently taking a biguanide for her diabetes and a calcium channel blocker and thiazide diuretic for her hypertension. This makes us start to think of the potential for underlying heart failure and what procedures to follow to gain an understanding of what's underlying all of these symptoms. Looking at Julia's vitals, we see that her blood pressure is at 137 over 79, her respiratory rate is 15, and her heart rate is 61. When we examine her, we notice right away that her right neck vein is slightly distended, even when she is seated. It looks like her abdomen is mildly bloated, and we can also see swelling in her lower legs. As we listen to her lungs, we hear that they are clear to auscultation. We need to keep in mind that her symptoms are occurring when she's active, not when she's at rest. When we listen to her heart, we can appreciate that she has normal heart sounds, no S3. When we get an EKG, we find that it's pretty unremarkable. We see normal R-wave progression, a left axis deviation, and a slight increase in the amplitude of AVL. This suggests there may be some underlying left ventricular hypertrophy. About a week or so later, the results of Julia's labs are in. She has an elevated N-terminal prohormone BNP level, or NT-proBNP, at 980. NT-proBNP is always released by the heart, but this secretion is substantially increased in response to myocardial wall stress. For those aged 50 to 75, an NT-proBNP reading above 900 picogram per milliliter is an indication of acute heart failure. She also has a mildly elevated creatinine level at 1.3, which can indicate renal dysfunction. This is another illustration of the renal cardiovascular metabolic connection and disease cascade. We then obtain an echocardiogram for Julia, and what we see there is normal contraction of the heart, but the filling, or the diastolic period, is abnormal. We also see a left atrium that's dilated, which often is seen in patients who have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. When we combine what we know about Julia's history and medications with what we see on her exam, her heart, her lungs, her lab results, and finally her echo, her diagnosis is heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Now let's consider current treatment guidelines and the ACCF, AHA, stages of heart failure that help us align patients with the appropriate treatment. Where does Julia fit in? The ACCF AHA guidelines go from A, the lower end of severity in which patients are at risk for heart failure but without structural changes or symptoms, to the high end of severity or stage D, which includes very advanced refractory heart failure and symptoms and stress even when sitting. Julia falls into stage C because she currently has symptoms of heart failure, but it's not refractory. The fact that her ejection fraction is preserved will further guide our treatment choices. The guidelines recommend diuretics to address the underlying comorbidities, such as hypertension and diabetes. Julia was already taking a diuretic when she came in for the visit, but we might want to think about switching from a thiazide diuretic to a loop diuretic to better help with her volume status and congestion management. She's also on a calcium channel blocker, but we'll want to consider that some of those therapies can actually lead to lower extremity edema over time, further confounding her existing edema, so perhaps we should switch her to an ACE inhibitor instead. She's on a biguanide for her diabetes, but we'll want to get a better understanding of her underlying cardiovascular risk to see if we may need to help better optimize her anti-diabetic therapy. 
And along with hypertension and diabetes, we might also want to find out if she has underlying coronary artery disease. Even though she didn't describe any shortness of breath, it would be good to probe further to find out if she's had any exertional chest pain or pressure. We could consider doing a stress test or a cardiac catheterization to look into this possibility further. Now that we've spent some time discussing our hypothetical patient with heart failure, let's take a step back and think about the big picture. Sure, we have valuable recommendations to help guide treatment for our patients. However, as we discussed earlier, patients are often not being matched up with the right treatment. So despite the progress that's been made, significant unmet needs for patients with heart failure remain. We cannot overstate the importance of thinking collaboratively here. As providers, we all want the best for our patients, but we need to remain vigilant in regard to these comorbidities and always remember that the risks conferred by each start to stack up on top of each other, resulting in an increased mortality, hospitalization, and rehospitalizations. And of course, a person's quality of life is greatly reduced by these overlapping comorbidities. To close, let's summarize what we've covered. Even though there are treatments available for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, many patients are still not being linked up with the correct therapy. There are a lot of factors to consider when assessing and managing a patient with heart failure, and it is important to consider all of these factors and potential comorbidities when formulating a treatment plan. It's always a pleasure to meet with you, Dr. O'Keefe, and I hope those of you listening have learned something valuable as it applies to your clinic or your patients. It was great to have this discussion with you, Melissa, and to share this timely information with our audience. Thank you for joining us.